The reading is taken from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene, went to the, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. When John, in his Gospel, tells the story of the discovery of the empty tomb, he makes it a highly visual piece of writing. The narrative develops as the narrator records what the characters in the plot are able to see for themselves. And in this way, we as readers find out what is going on as we look at events unfolding through the eyes of Mary, Peter, and the beloved disciple. And that enables us to see them with our own eyes. And if we're familiar with the story, that actually works to our disadvantage a bit in this respect. We know what's coming. We know that it's going to end with Mary meeting Jesus for herself. And it's easy to gloss over all the build-up to that all those careful stepping stones that the narrator has put in place and carefully crafted. It all starts with Mary coming very early in the morning while it's still dark to the tomb. And she sees the stone, well, the stone isn't where she expected it to be. It isn't over the mouth of the tomb where she knew it was. Instead, it's been moved. And the entrance to the tomb is open. 
Now, if you don't know the story, you'll wonder what's going on here. And it's still dark. Has she come to the right place? Is, are the shadows causing her to be confused about what she sees? We want Mary to investigate further, but no, she runs away. Instead of enabling us to see what's going on, she runs away and finds the beloved disciple and Peter. Perhaps she's frightened of what might be there, but she goes to them and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. There's no thought in her mind of a miracle at that point. Grave robbers. That's her first thought. They have taken his body out of the tomb. We have, from that period of history, an inscription by order of the emperor that was discovered in the region of Nazareth, expressly forbidding the robbing of graves. It reads, Ordinance of Caesar. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain undisturbed in perpetuity, for the benefit of those who made them, for the purpose of religious commemoration of the dead. If anyone has authentic information that someone has demolished a tomb or removed the buried body or has with malicious intent transferred the body to another place and thus committed a sacrilege against the dead or has removed the sealing stone at the mouth of the tomb, I order that a trial be instituted against such a person. It's our duty to honour the dead It is absolutely forbidden for anyone to violate tombs or to remove the dead. In case of contravention of this decree, I order that the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of tombs. So long before the days of Burke and Hare, it seems that grave robbing was a lucrative business. And no wonder, when they hear that people have taken the body of Jesus away, Peter and the beloved disciple run as fast as they can to the tomb to see what has happened. There is a real fear that, added to the trauma of torture and crucifixion, Jesus' body has been desecrated. And perhaps because he was almost certainly younger and fitter, the beloved disciple reaches the tomb first. He must be light enough to see clearly what's going on by this time, because he looks inside the tomb, and through his eyes we see quite clearly that the grave clothes are still there. That rules out grave robbers. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, observed, if anyone had removed the body, he wouldn't have stripped it first. Taking grave clothes off a dead body is a laborious process of unwinding. And it's not something you want to do in a grave where there's a chance of being discovered doing that in the process. You take the body with the grave clothes, take it somewhere safe, and then, if you want to unwrap the body, that's where you do it. So if robbers had taken the body, the grave clothes would not have been left. Grave clothes mean the body has not been stolen. By the time the beloved disciple has looked in and figured this out, Simon Peter's come huffing and puffing to the scene and he goes straight into the tomb and he sees the grave clothes there and, as well, something else, the burial cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. That is folded up neatly and put to one side as if it had been taken off to allow someone to breathe properly, to allow someone to see clearly. When the beloved disciple comes in and sees this for himself, that is enough to make him believe. I'd love to know precisely what it was that he believed. We're not told. It's not that he believed the scriptures prophesying that Jesus would rise from the dead because we're told that neither he nor Peter understood those yet. Maybe he just believed that Jesus 
wasn't dead. But a complete understanding of what had really happened had not yet dawned on him. And with that, the beloved disciple and Peter head for home. And what about Mary? She's forgotten in the midst of focusing upon these two and what they, what they see. And she's been standing outside the tomb crying. You know, I can't believe those two blokes just ignored her. They might have done, I suppose. They were blokes after all. But they must have said something to her on their way out. Surely, you know, don't know what's happened here. Or it's going to be all right, Mary, don't worry. Or, or come back with us. But she stayed where she was. And after they've gone and got out of her way, she bends over and she looks inside the tomb for herself. And she sees something different again. She sees two angels sitting there, either side of the place where Jesus' body had been placed, one at the head, the other at the foot. Now, clearly at this point, we move into the realm of the paranormal. Because Peter and John had been in. They'd seen for themselves what was there. They'd come out again. Mary had been standing there crying. She hadn't seen anybody else go in. These two figures must just have appeared there. Unless, of course, she's delusional. But the narrator clearly accepts the reality of the angels. They're really there as far as the narrator's concerned. And the narrator says they speak to her, ask her why she's crying. Which suggests that they may not just be a figment of her imagination. So something extraordinary is going on here. If angels were around, you have to figure that the missing body is a case of divine intervention. But Mary still doesn't seem to be able to get ahead around this. At this point, we as readers get to understand better than Mary herself what's going on, because we're told that she turns and she sees Jesus standing there. And we know that it's Jesus, because the narrator tells us it's Jesus. But she doesn't recognise him. She thinks it's the gardener or somebody. And still because in her mind she thinks somebody's taken the body away. She says, is it you? Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and and I'll go and get him. It's only when Jesus calls her by name, Mary, that at last she knows who it is standing in front of her. It was hearing his voice that made the difference. Even though she'd seen him with her own eyes, she didn't recognise him. And we know that she must have flung her arms around him or something like that because he says, don't hold on to me, don't touch me, you've got to let me go. I haven't ascended to my father yet. So she sees him, but doesn't recognise him. She touches him, but has to let him go. She hears him call her by name. That's the decisive thing. It's then that she recognises him. And that's interesting for us because sometimes I think, you know, wish we, we wish that we could see Jesus for ourselves. She saw him but didn't know who he was. If we could, if we could grab hold of Jesus, but she had let him go. I wonder how many of us have sensed him call us by name. Heard him speaking to us one way or another. I wonder how many of us can say we've had that kind of personal encounter with Jesus. Not seeing with our eyes, but hearing with our ears and with our minds. 
I don't often quote the Pope in my sermons. But I'm going to do so tonight, and I'm very pleased to do so. Back in November 2013, in his apostolic exhortation on the proclamation of the gospel in today's world, they never go for catchy titles, do they? Pope Francis had this to say. I invite all Christians, everywhere, at this very moment, to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that the invitation isn't meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. Whenever we take a step towards Jesus, we come to realise that he is already there waiting for us with open arms. Now is the time to say to Jesus, Lord, I've let myself be deceived. In a thousand ways I've shunned your love. Yet here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again, Lord. Take me once more into your redeeming embrace. How good it feels to come back to him whenever we are lost. Let me say this once more. God never tires of forgiving us. We are the ones who tire of seeking his mercy. Christ, who told us to forgive one another 70 times 7, has given us his example. He has forgiven us 70 times 7. Time and time again, he bears us on his shoulders. No one can strip us of the dignity bestowed upon us by this boundless and unfailing love. With a tenderness which never disappoints, but is always capable of restoring our joy. He makes it possible for us to lift up our heads and start anew. Let us not flee from the resurrection of Jesus. Let us never give up, come what will. May nothing inspire more than his life, which impels us onwards. I can say a wholehearted amen to that. And I hope you can too. Easter Sunday opens the door for each and every one of us to have a life-changing, personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ for ourselves. To hear him call us by name without any intermediary. To hear his commission to go and tell those whom we meet that he is alive. That he's risen from the dead that because he lives, we will live as well. It's good news. Good news worth sharing. Mary met Jesus that morning. Heard him speak her name, Mary. Grabbed hold of him, but she couldn't stay there, clinging on to Jesus, delighted as she was to see him. There was work to be done. She was to go and tell his disciples... Well, what is she to tell them? Not 
as we might expect. Jesus really is alive. I've seen him from my own eyes. I know now why the tomb was empty. There's nothing to worry about. Rather, the message is, I'm going up. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And if we include ourselves among Jesus' followers, then he is going to his Father and our Father, to his God and our God. And apparently that is more important than his sticking around here so that we can see him with our own eyes or touch his body with our own hands. So what's the big deal in going back to God? Well, I'm sure at one level the Father just wanted to welcome the Son home after 30-odd years of incarnation and the trauma of crucifixion as well. But it's surely more than that. Jesus comes into the presence of the Father as a flesh and blood human being. One of us. In Jesus, God himself entered our world as one of us. And through Jesus, who is one of us, we enter God's reign. Through Jesus, we come into the presence of the Father. The Father and the Son have known and loved each other from all eternity, but now the Father of Jesus is our Father too. And the God he represented is our God. Jesus said, didn't he, no one can come to the Father except through him? Well, when he goes back to the Father, he goes as a flesh and blood human being, and we come to the Father too through him. Easter Sunday means the way is open for all of us to know God personally as our Father. People down through the years have got whole people down through the years have had all sorts of fancy ideas about God. But the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus shows that the God to believe in is his God. The God he has made known to us. The God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him, any and every one of us listening to this sermon, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's good news to be believed. Good news to be shared. Good news by which we can set the course of our entire lives because we can be completely confident of the ultimate outcome of our lives because Jesus ascended to the Father and brings us into the presence of God as well. So Jesus is alive. Jesus is at large. Jesus is around. And if he hasn't done so already, one day he's going to call you by name. Be open to that. Be ready to hear it. And when you do, don't hesitate to accept and welcome him as your Lord and live your life for him. Because in doing so, you will know the reality of the presence of God in your life. His Father is your Father. His God is your God. Every single day of this life and for all eternity. Hallelujah. Amen.